Welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. Welcome back to another episode of Generation Ag. This episode was with Hannah Burke, who is the CEO of Speckle Park. Hannah began the role at Speckle Park International as their first CEO in November last year. She's got a really interesting story and she really goes into a lot of depth on how she actually ended up in this role. And I won't really talk about it. You need to listen. But she came from a beef territory manager position with Neogen. And then she landed this role with Speckle Park. But along her journey, she's seen a lot of diversity within the agricultural space. And it's very fascinating. She's currently based in Central West New South Wales. And she works closely with Speckle Park International to provide a variety of awareness. But she also helps support the board, subcommittees, broader membership and industry stakeholders with awareness and growth for the Speckle Park breed. And she'll talk about this during the podcast. She's focusing on achieving growth across research, marketing, developing market opportunities, member services, strategic planning, and more. This is such a great chat with Hannah. I really enjoyed getting to know her and it was privileged to have a little bit of time as she is a very busy woman, but I really think so many people will get so much out of this because she's got a lot of breadth to share, a lot of interesting knowledge. And she's also quite raw and real as well. So it was really, really great. So let's get into the episode now. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us on the Generation Ag podcast. Very excited to have you. I'd love to just start out if you could tell us a little about your childhood. Um, So my childhood, I grew up in Victoria. Um, My parents were separated, so it's, it's kind of, I guess, long and convoluted. But the short version is... Um, I, I grew up in Victoria, um, you know, I, we've got agricultural connections. Um, I was a real horsey kid, I guess, through, um, you know, through my childhood, I, I still am, um, much to the burden of my partner. Um, but, um, you know, from that, you know, I thought that was maybe where I wanted to go. And I remember dad saying to me that, um, he goes, oh, you're not going to make any money in horses. And I always love ag and I always love cattle. So for me, the na- the natural career progression for me was, um, was a, yeah, it was to go and get an ag degree and, and start in the ag field. That was sort of, but to me, that sort of seemed really natural. I just loved being outside. I loved cattle. I loved horses. I just, you know, I loved the, that space. And yeah, I guess that's sort of um, where a lot of things kicked off for me. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you grew up around ag, but it wasn't directly what you're involved in, but you saw this. No, mum works in the mum works in the health in the healthcare system. Yeah. Um, yep. and yeah, dad, um, you know, we have we've got a family property and stuff, but you know, when your parents are separated, you sort of end up between multiple, you know, you end up in different spaces. So yeah, it wasn't a permanent fixture. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And for you with ag, what is it about, obviously, you know, you've been around a lot of animals, but why is it, did it continue to keep drawing you in? I really can't put my finger on it specifically. I think it's one of those things that you just know that you love. Um, Yeah. It's, I think, you know, that yes, there's an outside element. Yes, there's, you know, there's a, there's a people, there's an environment. Yeah, it's just, I think it's just one of those innate things that you just know that you're going to, that you love it really. 
Yeah. That's what it was for me. Yeah, for sure. And then you sort of, you went through school and then decided to study agribusiness. Was school sort of a direction that helped you to study agribusiness or was it just that was still something, even as a teenager, you were thinking that this was where you were going to go? No, um, I think it was, this was sort of, um, you know, a lot of my friends through school, they ended up going off and doing things like teaching and, you know, law and accounting and all those sorts of things. And um I, so what happened basically was that I turned 18. Um, I was living down in Victoria. I got into, I got accepted um, into a Bachelor of Rural Science up at the University of New England. Um, so I basically threw what I owned um, into my car and I moved 16 plus hours away from home. Um, I moved to a new state. I didn't know anyone. Um, I ended up um, getting accepted into Rob College at, in Armadale. Um, so that's where I sort of, that's where I started for me. And then um, rural science wasn't really my jam. There was something about it um, and I really enjoyed the business side of things. So I switched over and I switched into the Bachelor of Agriculture and the Bachelor of Business double degree program. Um, and I think that was, look, if I look back on those years, you know, you get you get real, with real rose coloured glasses. They were some of the best years. I don't know how often we we survived through on what we, but we did. You know, we worked we worked holiday jobs and in the ag sector, and then we'd come back to uni, and and that's sort of what um, that's created a lot of connections for me. Also, moving forward, that that university um, degree, and also the people that you meet and create that network through the college system, and I think that's also been a big benefit. Yeah, for sure. Those initial thought processes between sort of leaving school, moving home and then moving so far away, was it just when you're young, you just see that as an experience and just kind of don't think too much about it and get in the car and go? Or did you not like, because that's a big deal to move that far for university, particularly in Australia. It was a bit. um, I think I finished school and I was at home and I was like, yep, this is what I was going to do. And I was really excited about it. Um, and I didn't, I don't know, it just seemed like an adventure and, and dad came up with me. He, um, he drove up with me to make sure that I was safe and I was settled. And then I suppose he left and it all hit home that it was really happening, that my family was eight, you know, 16, 18 hours away from me. Um, the first few months were, yeah, that was a bit, that was, bit surreal that was a bit of a struggle um you know my family's in an entirely different state I'm you know I'm at uni I'm still trying to I'm trying to get my head around the you know what it's like to be a uni student and then you're also in a college environment and you're trying to meet people and and get to know people and um I don't you know that was so yeah the first few months were a bit I remember (laughs) remember being like calling mum one day and I was like oh my god but you know I think we all went through that to be honest I think we all Mm. probably had moments where we were homesick or something like that um you know, I'd never done boarding school or anything like that, like some of my friends had, so they were a bit more okay with it. But, um, yeah, we got there. Yeah, yeah, that's still, it's a very brave move to do that. And then obviously you graduated with your double degree in business and agriculture. How did you navigate that as you were sort of graduating? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do or? No, so this is, um. so what actually happened was I ended up back down in Victoria um, and I got offered a job with elders as an agronomist. 
So I took on that role as a graduate agronomist, even though I te- didn't technically hadn't technically graduated at that point. I still had six months um, of my degree. So I actually started working for elders as a um, as a graduate agronomist and finishing my degrees by, via distance. Um, so I ended up doing my last um, exams down in Horsham. So I think so. I was, I was really already in the workforce, or um, by the time I had graduated. So for me, that was just one of those things. I suppose it's a bit like, you know, the idea of picking up and moving to um, New South Wales for university. Like, you know, if I, and if I look back over the last 10 years of my career, um, I think that's probably something that does shine through is opportunities have come along and I've grabbed them with both hands and I've taken the risk and, and run with it. Yeah. And even that first opportunity that came up as an agronomist, how did that come about? Were you just in the right place at the right time or just an alignment? Yeah, I think it was just right place, right time. You know, I was I was back down in Victoria, um, you know, was looking for was sort of looking for a job and and someone said, Oh yeah, there's a job going going here. And I walked in and um yeah, I, I think that was very much just right place, right time. Um didn't know, didn't again, Newtown, didn't really know anyone. So that was just um that was just sort of reaching out and putting yourself out there. Yeah, I think that that's the most important part with agriculture and networking for sure. So you've done a few diverse roles and I want to talk about your role you're in now, but I'd love to talk about that elder's role and that timeline between where you are now because it's really interesting to see what you've done. They, <laughs> they're all in agriculture, but they're all completely different. So I'd love to talk about this a little bit in detail because I think we have a lot of young listeners and to go from that elders agronomy role to this position you are now, it's possible and you can actually achieve what you want in this industry. Yeah. Um, okay. It's It's been a bit of a wild ride, I'm not going to lie. Um, so I started out as a, a graduate agronomist in um, obviously with elders in, in Horsham. Um, I was there for a while. It didn't quite click with me. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I've always sort of been an animal. I've been an animal kid, been an animal person. Um, so agronomy was um, well out of my, I guess, my depth as well. And growing up, you know, we're talking pastures and we're talking at cattle, and that's what I knew. And to go into an agronomy space that was um, crops was in, in a cropping in a very heavy cropping and sheep area was um, a very steep learning curve. Um, long story short an opportunity within elders came up within the internal network um, to move into the live export team. Um, And I just went and had a really frank conversation with my boss. I said, um, you know, this is, you know, I really appreciate what the opportunities that you've given me, but I don't think this is my jam. Um, Can you, you know, would you be happy if I took this on and, you know, or or put my name out there? And and he was really supportive about it. which was which was great and he said yeah yeah you know we'll support that and had a conversation with um the scotty who was in charge of the live export team um and yeah moved to melbourne and was working in live export that was i was in live export for 18 months bit over um and i was doing a lot of the compliance paperwork with around pedigrees um so for those that may not be aware in live export when we weren't um, in the meat trade, we were in the, we were doing production animals, particularly into, into China and a few other countries. Um, so their protocols require that all those animals have to have 
um, you know, pedigrees and, and be traceable. So I was doing I was doing that sort of certification for the um, you know for the government uh, tariffs is probably the best way to explain it, um, and that's how I actually started to make more connections. I made connections within the elders network. I made connections with producers. I made connections with the breed societies, um, and it just got to a point where things were changing. It was around that time where we were seeing a lot of things in the live export pop up on. Um, you know, in mainstream media, uh, I don't know. You know, some some of you may remember there was the the sheep on the ship. Um, you know, those sorts of things were hitting the media. There was discussions about vets on boats. Um, so things in the live export space were really kind of shaking and um, moving and shaking. And we all knew that there was things going on. Um, and it just so happened I had my horses. Like, so I mentioned earlier that I've always been a horse kid. I had one horse in the, at the time who I'm fairly sure moved with me about six times um, because he just, he just, I just kept carting him around the country because um, I was never prepared to, to release that part of my life, no matter where my career took me. Um, you know, so I was working literally in the middle of Melbourne in the, in the CBD. I was keeping horses, um, you know, an hour down the coast. I was living um, in the burbs and, I suppose it just got to a point for me from a mental perspective that I was going, something's not feeling right at work anymore, even though I absolutely loved the team I was working with. I, I, they just were one of the best group of people to work with. But I just went, something's not sitting right here um, in, the, in the export side of things. I've tried Melbourne. Um, it's been really great, but it's not for me. Inner city living, is, is this is not, um, you know, filling my cup, I suppose, in a really, if you want to use a really modern term, um, I think it's time for me to go back to a more rural slash regional setting. Um, so I had a conversation and I just mentioned it. I just was, you know, I was just mentioning it on the phone and mentioned it to um, someone that I was working with at, at the time with Angus Australia. I was doing some Angus certs and they said, oh, well, you know, we, we probably have a role. Um, would, you be, would you be interested and I went, yeah, okay. That probably gets me. That gets me back to Armidale, which is an area that I knew really well, being at uni there. I still had friends there. I had a social circle there. Um, you know, people thought I was mad with the weather, but I was like, I've already done four years there, so that's not a, that's nothing new. Um, so yeah, I again, I just I um, I left my job and said goodbye to Melbourne, and we moved. Um, well, I moved up to move back to Armidale to start in the seed stock space. Um, so that was another that was another change. And I'm actually, in hindsight, I'm lucky I I listened to my gut on that to say something's not right and you need to um, maybe step out of this for several reasons. Um, you know, the live export side of things, the mental health side of things, all of those, because it wasn't long much longer afterwards. Um, I'm going to say about four to six weeks later, at the most. Um, it was announced that Elders was actually shutting down their live export um, division entirely. So my whole team basically got made redundant um, and wow. had to go out and find alternative jobs and we're all spread out now. So I think I was lucky in the sense that I'd stepped out of one stable and secure job into another and, and didn't have to navigate that redundancy side of things. People tell me I should have, but I... Knowing myself, I think that would have caused me more stress having to go through that, whereas stepping out and into another secure job worked well. 
Um, yeah, so I started, and so then I started in the world, um, in the wild world of um, seed stock, really. Um, started with Angus Australia. They put me into the DNA world, into DNA. Mm-hmm. I've never, never dealt with DNA, never dealt with this side of things before. Um, learned how to do that. Um, you know, you're talking to someone who hated genetics at school, um, mm-hmm. just hated it. Uh, sorry, and, you know, sorry, through university and was doing DNA. And then I was, um, I got a phone call from Alex Ball, who was managing Hereford's Australia um, about six months into that role and said, we've heard about you and we're actually looking for a breed development manager. Would you be interested in coming to work for Hereford's? Um, and I went, yeah, sure. You know, um, there was nothing wrong with Angus Australia, but I think Hereford's offered me a scope for um, greater learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took that opportunity and, and stepped into that and um, was with Hereford's for two and a bit years. Um, and Hereford's at the time were going through, they were introducing DNA testing and genomics to their membership um, and were making that. And I was, um, I guess in some ways, I was really in charge of some of that sort of stuff along with our CEO at the time, Alex Ball. Um, and that, again, that put me into connection and relationships with Neogen um, and Neogen were growing. Neogen were looking for um, their very first ever um, territory sales manager for Australia in beef. Um, and I was having a, just having a chat with them and, you know, they were saying, oh, do you know of anyone that might be suitable? And I was trying to think about it and I, I'd thrown some names their way and, um, you know, made some recommendations because I knew the team over there really well had a good working relationship with them and um, just through conversation I said, oh, you know, they said, oh, would you be interested? And I said, would I be suited? And, yeah, next thing I know I'm, I'm working for Neogen and I'm travelling overseas and I'm talking about DNA in, in beef cattle. Um, so it's it's been quite a, I guess, a, a windy road or a convoluted road, um, you know, and, and then through Neogen I was working for them for um, a really for several years and, and really loving that job. And Speckle Park at the time had, um, they'd, they'd shifted some things in their business structure and were going out on their own and and, were, and they're growing at such a speed. They, um, they approached me and said, we like your, we really like you. We like your knowledge. We like your contacts. We like your um, experience and your ability to talk to people. Would you come on board and be our CEO? So that's kind of how I've ended up where I am now. But I suppose the underlying message of that is that, you know, through through networks and through communication and also through taking the leap um, and being prepared to take on some of those challenges. And don't get me wrong, there was times when I've taken on things and I'm like, oh, has this been, is this the right choice? I don't know. Um, but if you're prepared to work hard enough and to figure things out, people will give you a crack. Um, I think is the key thing there and there's stuff where I didn't know and I had to you know suck up my pride and say I don't know how to do this and um, you know and and think and people seem to respect me a lot more had respected me a lot more for saying that than for trying to think I knew everything Um, and yeah and just and just taking that plunge my theory is you don't ever say no to a conversation because you're never going to be in a worse position than you already are. Yeah, I love that. That's so powerful. What was that initial thinking when Speckle Park approached you about becoming the CEO? Um, I think I swore. <laughs> <laughs> I Out of shock? Or was, was that shock or just like uh, 
yeah, not not realizing that was going to happen or? I think, look, I think the first part of you is always really flattered that you've been considered in that the people, the people recognize those skills, um, especially when we often don't tend to want to recognize those skills in ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's something that, you know, or if you do recognize some of those skills in yourself, you often get torn down or you're told you're cocky or you're too confident. Um, I've had all of those things said to me. I've been told I've been bossy. I've been told I'm too confident. I've been told all of those things. I think you can still, I think there's a balance in there that you can be um, comfortable with what you know without being cocky. Um, So I think it was nice to be acknowledged that the work I have put in was being acknowledged. There was another part of me that also didn't quite think it was real. Um, I was like, oh, are you sure you've got the right person? And then, you know, the self-doubt starts creeping in. And I think that's probably something that from through my career wasn't maybe normalised enough, the fact that we do have those self-doubts, um, that there's somewhat been this expectation that you just um, get on with it. And I think it's, I think having some self-doubts was is completely normal. And I think I found a, a a network that we all support each other and we all, um, you know, normalise and we also will support each other and we also will say if we don't know something, um, we'll, we'll go and find someone that is smarter than us to help us. Um, but, um, yeah, it was all a bit It was all a bit surreal, to be honest, um, to be offered the role of CEO of Speckle Park, but I said yes, so here I am. <laughs> and from that position, I want to talk a bit about a day in the life but I'll start with do you want to tell us a little bit about Speckle Park what it does what your roles and responsibilities as CEO are sure um so Speckle Park are a breed of cattle I suppose is the shortest way to describe it they originated in Canada they've been in Australia for about 12 years so in the grand scheme of cattle breeds and seed stock we'd be considered very new and very young when you consider, you know, for example, Angus just celebrated its centenary not that long ago and, you know, Hereford's have been around as well for, you know, quite a long period of time. So we're, we're considered, I guess, quite quite new and quite fresh. Um, I am the CEO of Speckle Park International. So we are the governing registry body for Speckle Park cattle in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so my role as CEO, we're a membership-based organisation. We have over 500 members across, predominantly in Australia and New Zealand, but we've got, um, you know, we're across six countries. We've got members in six countries. Um, so we're, so I guess my role predominantly is around maintaining the integrity of our herd book and our registry services um, and enhancing and promoting the breed. So it's about taking taking the breed to a point and, and setting the direction and the working with the board to set a strategy. And then I put that strategy into an operational, um, I put the operations behind it. I make that happen, you know, so yeah. the board, you know, it's, it might be saying, okay, we need to, for example, we want to, to meet some commercial relevancy. We want to run a feedlot trial, for example. And my job from an operations perspective, perspective is to put those strategic goals into operation so that we can continue to enhance and grow this breed. Mm. With Speckle Park, what is the goal for Australia or for your role as the CEO? Where What's the direction in which you're going in? Well, we keep seeing this massive growth. Um, it just, 
you know, we've had a 30% increase in, in you know, in um, female inventory from last year to this year. You know, we've, we've got another 30, 40% of membership in the last 12 to 18 months. Like it just keeps growing. Um, so I think if we can continue to harness that and, and move in that, um, in that direction, I think the next step for us and what I would like to see achieved is um, a greater commercial awareness and adoption of the breed and the value that this breed brings to the, I guess, the Australian beef sector. Um, so that will be around putting out some data, um, you know, on the maternal and the um, maternal and terminal traits in the breed. And it's also just around, um, I guess, creating some, some greater awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's so interesting. It was uh, funny. I was at an event yesterday and someone mentioned a speckle park cow. And I was like, that's so funny how, cause we were having this chat today and I was like, um, clearly, and this is in Western Australia. So yeah, it's taking off people that are talking about it, which that must be pretty exciting for you to hear. It is. It's great. And, you know, I think it's also a real credit to all the breeders that have been in this from, you know, particularly from the, the breeders that have been this in, in this from the early days. Um, you know, the commitment and the dedication is really starting to show and really starting to pay off. And, um, you know, the the drive behind it, um, you know, they just keep smashing records. A female sold on the weekend for $70,000. Wow. Um, yeah, you know, that topped, that topped another female that sold not that long ago for 57. Like it's just um, the demand for this breed is is just continuing to grow and um yeah I guess the short answer is we just can't breed them fast enough so that's that's not a terrible problem to have no (laughs) no it's not it's um it's it's quite I guess for yes it's really for me it's a real pleasure to see these breeders being rewarded um for the hard work and the commitment that they've put in for it um into the breed long term so Mm -hmm. that's really nice to see yeah, for sure. So I'd love to know, I guess, you know, we're still very much, especially you guys over each East, sorry, in a very COVID orientated world. What does a typical day in the life look like at the moment or what sort of hurdles are you facing trying to create breadth and understanding for the breed when you can't always be in front of people? Because I guess that visual in-person aspect of seeing the breed is probably really important. Yeah, COVID has certainly, I think, as a nation has probably changed the way that we are going to um, have to function moving forward, which I think for agriculture has its own niche impacts. We are an industry that is so comfortable and so used to doing things face-to-face. That's certainly the way I am, you know, really comfortable to operate. Um, It's so that's, that has certainly posed challenges. It's also meant that running things like, um, you know, education days and forums and and various things around the country um, has been really limited because we can't travel. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, now that we're all getting our jabs that we can start to prepare some of these sorts of things. Um, I'd organised for our first ever national conference um, to be run at about this time um, this year, but we didn't know what was happening around the COVID-19 and and the plan behind that was to be a a national conference, obviously for everybody to come. There was going to be a day where we were going to be out in the paddock on farm, 
chatting, networking, all those sorts of things. And then we're going to have a day of, of education, um, you know, with talks from feedlotters and um, cattle buyers and all those sorts of things. So um, I, I hope that we can still do that next year. But I suppose um, we've just really had to we've just really had to tweak some of the things that we do. I can't travel as much. Um, but I think it's just one of those things that you um, you adapt. You have to adapt. There's not, there's not really any, you can't, there's no point complaining about it. Um, I know it's all taken its toll on us in some, in everyone in some way or another, and that's completely valid, but I just think that we have to um, find ways to adapt to it. Yeah, absolutely. Adaption is key, I think, which is something that we do as an industry anyway, all the time. So we'll, we'll get by. And I think it's good being able to utilize technology in different ways because I think that it essentially we're really broadening the horizon of the accessibility. So for you, I guess, you know, in the in-person events, only so many people can get to whether you've got something available online, that accessibility to anyone to be able to view that is really good. Yeah, absolutely. And we've like we've just recently run a couple of webinars that have been really well attended. Um, so we're really pleased with that and, and the reaction and the feedback we're getting out of that. So I'd say we'll continue to to do things like that and, and we may go to the next step where we um, run some more, I guess, live, you know, online but more live events. Um, mm. Yeah, so we'll certainly see how that all fits in. Yeah. Uh, love to know what are some of the biggest learning curves you've had since starting as CEO? And so I knew you were going to ask me this question and I don't really know how to answer this. Um, what hasn't been a learning curve, I guess? I think the whole I think the whole thing has been a learning curve in various dif- in different ways. I think um, in some aspects, you know, it'll test your resilience in this mm-hmm. job. Like no, no day is ever the same. Um, no day is ever the same. And I think that I don't want to downplay this, but I think people sometimes go, oh, you know, you're a, you're a CEO. It must be, it must be really exciting. And, and some days are great and other days it's like every job. Some days are great and some days are not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just, um, you, you, have a, you have a list of things you want to achieve and some days that gets completely derailed and other days you're just kicking, absolutely kicking goals. Um, I think, so I think from a learning curve perspective, I think something for me that I've had to be um, really strict on is putting boundaries in place for myself. Um, that was something I had maybe hadn't, hadn't considered putting as much in in, in previous roles. Um, I think that I, I've certainly got a greater exposure to various parts um, of the business landscape, everything from um, risk management and mitigation, um, you know, the legal side of things, the Corporations Act, all of those aspects, that's been a bit of a learning curve. Um, so, you know, there's there's things, cattle, genetics, all of those sorts of things, that's about that's the stuff I can really talk about, you know, with my head underwater. That is that is what I'm really comfortable in. It's been the broader aspects of the business that I think have been a bit of a learning curve. I've been, um, I've had some great support in that area, which has been really good, but um, I think that's particularly something that, I knew was not my strength walking into this role, um, and I and I had to put my hand up and say, you know, the legal side of things, corporate corporate corporation side of things, um, you know, even some of the more nitty gritty, like the really nitty gritty stuff in the finance side of things. Um, you know, I can I can run budgets and balance spreadsheets and all those sorts of things, but to get really into the minute side of that, that is, um, yeah, that was they've all been learning curves for me. Yeah, I guess it would have. It's always big 
transitioning to any role, but in a role that's being new as well, that no one was in the role previous, there would have been things that you're just navigating as you went to make the role full. Absolutely. I think that's, I think when you start in a role that no one's ever been in before, um, it both with, it happened when I was working for Neogen in the beef territory side of things, there'd never been a a beef manager for them and they'd never been a CEO for Speckle Park. It's a, it's a real double-edged sword because it means you've got no blueprint to work off, but you can also make it your own. Mm. You can very much make it your own and stamp your own. Yeah, and I think that that's clearly what you've done and you're doing such a great job, which is amazing <laughs> to see. Before we sort of start to wrap it up, I would love you to give us your best piece of advice for, I guess, maybe your younger self or for younger listeners who perhaps one day see themselves working as an agribusiness CEO or in a high um, a corporate management position. Yeah. Um, advice for my younger self would probably be don't sweat the small stuff. If I look back over my career, the things that stressed me out at the start or I'd get really concerned or really panicky about, um, you know, or or get upset about. I never look back now and go, small potatoes. Yeah, don't don't wrap that. Don't let that um, wrap you around the axles. I think I've always been quite sort of. My career's always been quite important to me, and um, make and you know I, I've taken the career path that I have because people have take allowed me to take those opportunities I've, I've gone but I've also gone out and sought those opportunities um you're not gonna you're not gonna receive opportunities if you're waiting for them to come and knock on your door um you need to put yourself out there to a point that people know who you are um and you know it, it doesn't mean that people are going to fall over themselves but it's just that ability to, for people to know yep that's there's that person they're really good at this or they're really easy to talk to and um I would also say some of those interpersonal skills that's what's really important um your ability to listen your ability to talk to people um you know this is a skill you're not always going to have it I certainly know I wasn't comfortable getting up and talking to a crowd at a field day or you know, speaking to dozens of people on the phone was maybe not something I was super confident at at the age of 20. Um, These are skills that you learn Mm. Um, and you're not going to learn them unless you put yourself in some of those positions and and growth isn't always comfortable. Um, I have moments all the time where I'm really uncomfortable, but I'm also aware that I will wait, the sun will rise tomorrow morning um, and to keep focusing on the bigger picture. And for me now, that bigger picture is um, wanting to be really happy and healthy and content in my career and my life and all of those sorts of things. And um, I certainly still have goals and I'm not suggesting that you give up on any of those, but I think that um, don't lose sight of that bigger picture and and don't sweat the small stuff and some of that side of things. Um, And I guess my other point would be don't be afraid to have a conversation. You um, You know, it can be a conversation that, like, for example, when I was having the conversation about taking the job from, say, Herefords to Neogen, um, you know, be smart about it. Don't tell every man and his dog that you may be having those conversations, but, like, be smart about that. But um, if, if that job wasn't the right fit for me, there was no harm in me having that conversation with Neogen. I just would have said it's not the right fit for me. I'm going to stay where I am. But you don't know unless you have that conversation and you also don't know until you take the, take the leap if you feel that you're comfortable with taking that leap. 
Yeah, some really wise pieces of advice there. And I think it was really good that you've touched on then and earlier setting boundaries and having boundaries between, I think in this industry for so long, there has been no work-life balance. And I think you would probably agree with that. But I think it's something we need to really encourage moving forward because we need to be considering our mental health. We need to be considering a life outside of our work. Even when we're passionate about our careers like we are, it's so important. Yeah, I can I completely agree. And and you know, talking to someone who you, you know, speaking for myself, like um I was at a conference earlier this year and I started listing all the things that, you know, attribute to say burnout. And I was sitting there thinking about periods in my career. I was like, yep, that starts to ring true because I wasn't shutting off at the end of the day. I was taking work home with me. I was ruminating on it. I was thinking about what the next steps were. I wasn't taking I wasn't taking time to step away and take care of myself in that in that capacity. Um, and I think that's really important. And I also think now that because we all have mobile phones, um, you know, it's it's no issue with someone to ring you at 7 30, 8 o'clock at night. I got a text message from someone the other night at 10 o'clock at night wanting something. And you have to be put those boundaries in place and say, I'm not replying to that text message at 10 o'clock at night because I'm in bed or I've shut off and I want to spend time with my family. And, mm. um, you know, I, in, in my experience, in the roles I have been in, nothing has been so urgent that you can't, you can't put a boundary in place, um, you know, or if it is that urgent, someone will find a way. So it's not saying, it's not saying no to, a, to taking on more, to taking on more. It's not saying no to, um, pushing yourself outside of those boundaries. It's just knowing where you need to draw a line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that couldn't ring more true. For you, what is your hope for the future of the agriculture industry? I really hope, I've got a few hopes for the agricultural industry. Um, I really hope that in that we become more accepted um, as an, you know, I think, that city to country divide is is continuing to expand. I don't think we're narrowing that gap. Um, mm-hmm. I would really like to see that start to to narrow, and that the wider community, you know, the wider industry, or the you know, I shouldn't just say city people, but but that that we start to close that gap and people start to understand where their food comes from. They understand the passion that lies within so many of us that work in this industry, that we're in this because we genuinely, truly love it. Um, And so I do And, you know, to understand where their food comes from and all those sorts of things. So for me, I think that's something I'd really love to see. Um, I would also really like to see, I would like to see more women in positions of visibility. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the women in agriculture are phenomenal. I've met so many exceptional people, um, but sometimes they don't get the focus or the limelight that they often deserve. Um, yeah, and yeah. it's often all those little jobs that is done behind the scenes, or um, the credit's not always there for. I think I would really like to see that recognition, and I would really like because I remember coming through um, through high school and through university, and. The number there wasn't a huge number of women to to look towards, and I'm not um, and I'm not saying it all has to be about women. I have so many people in my network, and some of my closest mentors and supporters are men that really champion me and build me up. But I think 
for the future generations, it would be nice to be able to show that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And lastly, before we wrap it up, where is the best place for people to get in touch if they want to reach out to you? Well, um, look, you can, my contact details are pretty much all over the internet. So you can always like shoot me an email or give me a ring if you've got any questions. Um, but I'm also on LinkedIn and you can, Jen, you can also find me on Facebook under Hannah Burke. Thank I'm you wearing so a cowboy much. hat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Hannah. This has been so good. I've had such a good time chatting to you and really appreciated it. No worries. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.